Welcome to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop podcast. Because sometimes what a writer needs most is other writers, even virtually. Our February Writers Buzz revived our Story of a Book panel, in which we heard four published lighthousers discuss the ins and outs of the process they enjoyed or endured in getting their manuscripts from crazy first idea and into actual print. Each panelist read a short passage from their book and told the story of how it all came about. We heard from Harrison Fletcher and his memoir, Descanso for My Father, A Life in Fragments, Eleanor Brown and her first novel, The Weird Sisters, Jackie St. Joan and her novel, My Sister's Made of Light, and Jenny Shank from her novel, The Ringer. Tonight is a very special night because what we get to do is bring four people who have at least tangential involvement with Lighthouse Writers Workshop. In this case, everybody's involved, I think. Um, And they have gone from some crazy idea all the way through writing, through the process of maybe rejection once in a while, um, to finding the person who believed in their book enough to publish it. So all four of these people have been through that, and we're excited to hear their stories, and we're going to hear their stories. What I'm going to do is I'm going to introduce everybody, and then they're going to read a short excerpt from their work just to get us into the mood of the piece, and then they're going to tell us their story, and then you are going to have the opportunity to ask clarifying, admiring questions, if you feel like it. Um, okay, so let's start here because Harrison is our token man. We always try to have a man on the panel so we cannot be accused of anything. Um, Harrison Candelaria Fletcher is the author of, it says Deconso, but is that right? It should be Desconso. For my father, A Life in Fragments, a Bakeless Literary Award finalist forthcoming from the University of Nebraska Press American Live series, which also features some heavy hitters like Philip Lopate and um, John Scoyles. Big, big people. Um, a four-time Pushcart Prize nominee and National Magazine Award finalist. His honors include a New Letters Best Essay Award and a Pushcart Prize special citation. Um, By the way, you might not know about Harrison, a 20-year journalist, columnist, and essayist. I thought it said (laughs) 20-year-old. His work has appeared in numerous publications, including New Letters, Fourth Genre, Cimarron Review, New Ohio Review, Waterstone Review, Puerto del Sol, Palabra, Dos Pasos Review, Pilgrimage, and The Writer's Chronicle. He and I share that as a credit. (laughs) Um, he is co-editor of Shadowbox, a journal of contemporary nonfiction. You might submit. It's a very classy-looking journal. Have you guys seen it? Our own Meg Nix has appeared on those pages and, and some others. Um, and he was the nonfiction editor of Upstreet, which won the 2009 Independent Publishing Award Bronze Medal. In addition to Lighthouse... Um, And inferiorly to Lighthouse, he teaches creative writing at Regis University Master of Arts program (laughs) and University of Denver's University College. Can't believe you wrote that in there, but that's, yeah. (laughs) Um, Jackie St. Jones sitting right next to him and enduring a, a kind of catastrophic cold. She's not feeling good, but she's promised not to... Not to spread any germs. Um, Her writings have appeared in a variety of print and online media, including Ms. 
the Denver Quarterly, Harvard Women's Law Journal, um, Empire Magazine, Denver Post, and Thinking Women. She is the co-editor of Beyond Portia, Women, Law, and Literature in the U.S., and currently teaches at Metro State College of Denver. Uh, following her travels in Pakistan, she became the public education chair of the Asian American Network Against Abuse of Human Rights, a U.S.-based NGO that works to support Pakistani efforts to end human rights violation. Half of the author's proceeds from the sale of this book will be donated to Soil, a grassroots community organization in Pakistan, to pay for the construction of a safe shelter for abused women and children. So that's Jackie. And next we've got um, Jenny Shank. She's the author of the novel The Ringer. Hopefully you have your visual aid, the postcards that she passed out, um, to be published by the Permanent Press in March 2011, so in any week now. Couple weeks. Her stories, essays, and reviews have appeared or are forthcoming in Prairie Schooner, Alaska Quarterly Review, McSweeney's Internet Tendency, The Onion, Poets and Writers, Bust, Michigan Quarterly Review, Dallas Morning News, and Boulder Daily Camera. She's won several writing awards from the Center for the American West, the Montana Committee for the Humanities, Southwest Writers, and the Deborah Beming Memorial Fund. For six years, Jenny Shank was the Boulder Denver editor of the Onion AV Club, and she is currently the books and writers editor at NewWest.net, which was named Best Literary Blog in the Westward Best of Denver issue. Congratulations. Also, our main media coverage location. Um, Last book reviewer in the Rocky Mountain Royals. I, I think that might be close to true. <laughs> and last but not least, um, Eleanor Brown, born and raised in the Washington, D.C. area, um, has lived in St. Paul, San Francisco, Philadelphia, South Florida, and Oxford, London, and Brighton, England. Huh. <coughs> we should talk about that. She lives in Colorado with her partner, writer J.C. Hutchins, also successful probably, because, I mean, you just seem to radiate. Um, (laughs) Eleanor's writing has appeared in anthologies, journals, magazines, and newspapers. The Weird Sisters, her first novel, was recently published by Amy Einhorn Mm -hmm. Books, and it's available back there. So this is our illustrious panel. I'm very excited to present them. And we're going to start with Jenny Shank, who's going to read a little and tell us her story of her book. I'm afraid to. (laughs) Hello. Thank you for coming. Um, I have an essay in the current issue of Poets and Writers, and it's called The Ham and Egger. And it's basically about feeling like an underdog as a writer. And I've received more response to that essay than anything else I've ever published before. I think it's because every writer feels like an underdog. And I'm imagining that a lot of you here are writers, and you'd like to publish your books one day, and I bet you've felt discouraged over the years, and you've wondered, when is someone, when is it going to finally happen? When is somebody going to say yes? See, I could be a psychic doing audience readings. Every writer who ends up getting a book published has felt that way. And every writer who has a book published is an underdog who just stopped being an underdog for a couple of months. (laughs) And it just takes one person to say yes. And I know it can happen for you because it unexpectedly happened for me. A long time ago, I started writing this book, The Ringer. Um, 
I enjoy novels that give people an inside look at a particular subculture. For example, um, Joshua Ferris's And Then We Came to the End gives you an inside look at an advertising agency. Or Colson Whitehead's John Henry Days gives you an inside look at John Henry memorabilia enthusiasts. <laughs> so I was trying to think of what subculture I knew well, and I decided that the thing I knew best was competitive youth baseball, because I grew up doing that and watching my brother play that. So in 1999, when I was just beginning to think about writing a baseball novel, the Denver police raided a house in North Denver on a no-knock um, raid for a, a drug warrant. And they shot and killed Ismail Mina, the Mexican immigrant they encountered inside. Later it came out that they had gotten the wrong address on the warrant, and that they had entered a house they had no business being in. And I was really shocked and moved by this incident, and I watched it all unfold. And the part that was interesting to me as a writer was that the cop who shot the man was not responsible for the mistake on the warrant. So I imagined the guilt that he felt must be incredible. And everyone was, I mean, really coming down on the cops, rightfully so. But I was thinking, maybe the cop could be not a monster. So in my book, I tell both sides of the story. I was also interested um, in writing about Denver, because even though there are a lot of great writers here, there aren't many novels set here. Um, so I combined these ideas of writing about Denver and baseball with this growing feeling that I had to write something about the shooting of Ismail Mina. It felt like um, an important elemental story for Denver, something that could tell us a lot about Denver if we'd listened to it. So The Ringer is told from the alternating perspectives of Patricia Maestas, the Mexican-American wife of a Mexican immigrant killed by police, and Ed O'Fallon, the officer who shot her husband, whose sons end up playing in the same competitive youth baseball league in Denver. I'm going to read from Chapter 2, which is the first time we meet Patricia. Patricia Maestas sat home too early on a work day, sunk in Salvador's chair, a seat no one had occupied since he left for Mexico again six months before. She rubbed her hands over the armrests and settled into the dent left by his body. It had been an hour since Tio Tiger called her at work to say he'd seen the article about Salvador being killed by cops in a drug raid. Salvador had been dead for over a day without her knowing, and she couldn't understand how that was possible. The father of her children, the man of her life, shouldn't she have felt something when it happened? Bewildered, she made her way home. When she arrived home, she thought of taking the kids out of school, but then thought, no, leave them a few more hours of not knowing. But the kids should have been home by now. She walked out on the porch, shielding her eyes to scan the street. The litany of terrible possibilities unspooled in her head. Then she saw Mia approaching from the end of the block, alone, heart-shaped face angled toward the pavement, dragging her backpack by one strap. When Mia ran up the porch steps, Patricia sank to her knees and pulled her daughter close, burying her nose in Mia's long braids that smelled of strawberry shampoo. Mia's milky skin and delicate build came from Patricia, but her full lips came from Salvador, and Patricia kissed her on the mouth like she used to when she was a baby. Mia wiped her lips with the back of her hand. Where's Ray? Patricia asked. Mia was eight years old and responsible, but they lived near Federal, a busy street. Ray was 12 and should have known better. He said he'd be home in a while. I'm not supposed to say. Supposed to say what? That he let me walk home alone? 
She looked down at her shoes, as if consulting with them about how much to spill. He was walking to Federal with those boys. What boys? Miguel? It had started after Patricia and Salvador separated. In sixth grade, Ray stopped hanging out with his neighbor kids and picked up a new group that included Miguel, whose mother was barely 13 years older than he was, her boyfriend tattooed with the insignia of the Northside Mafia. Patricia had agreed to drive Ray over to Miguel's once. Two blunt-bodied, short-necked dogs scrambled over the dirt lawn toward their car like a couple of slavering torpedoes. Three men with shaved heads slouched on a sun-faded floral couch on the porch. Patricia kept on driving. Ray said, what the fuck, Mom, as the house with its gray-peeling paint and sagging roof faded back. Patricia screeched to a stop in the middle of the block. We don't talk that way, she said. You get that from Miguel? Ray fixed her with an ugly stare. Maybe I got it from Dad. He doesn't talk like that. You act like he does, Ray huffed. Don't say ain't, he added in a high-pitched tone meant to rile her in imitation of her grammar lessons. She sped off. Miguel's people were the sort who shot their guns into the air at midnight on New Year's Eve, too drunk to care where their bullets fell. But Patricia cared, because sometimes the bullets landed in bystanders wheeled into her at the hospital. You're too good for Miguel's neighborhood, too good for Dad's, Ray continued, testing his power. She shot him a glance. Watch it. She knew little about the house where Salvador had been renting a room, except that people moved in and out of there all the time. She couldn't keep track of all the different men who answered the phone there. Bueno? The neighborhood was bad, too, one that often made the 10 o'clock news. Since they had separated, Salvador had been meeting the kids at places where Patricia dropped them off. Sloan's Lake, the Woodbury Library, the museum on a free day so Mia could hunt for the elves hidden in the back of the animal dioramas. Ray pulled up the hood of his sweatshirt and faced away. Fine, Patricia said. Hate me if you want, but ask yourself, who takes care of you every time Dad takes off? After the day she'd driven past Miguel's, she kept Ray apart from him when she could, but she couldn't prevent the association at school, and a few weeks earlier they'd been suspended for flashing gang signs to each other on the playground. Salvador had told her not to worry about it so much, that Ray was a decent kid and he'd figure things out. Now Salvador was gone for good. You're not going to tell Ray I said he went with Miguel, right? Mia asked, tugging on Patricia's sleeve. Why are you still wearing your coat? Patricia looked down. She had forgotten to remove her coat when she arrived home two hours earlier, and when she let it drop now, she shivered. And you're still in your nurse scrubs, Mia said. What about germs? We've got to find your brother. Patricia led Mia into the car and drove toward Federal Boulevard. She scanned the parking lots of businesses, churches, schools, and homes all jumbled together along one stretch of road. She was hoping he'd be outside where she could see him. She'd revoke his allowance for a month. The only way to keep them home was to keep them broke. Federal offered too many places to pass five bucks worth of time. They passed the old Federal movie theater that had sat empty for years, its name in jaunty white cursive writing above the jutting marquee. She glanced at the little shop where her mother used to buy chorizo and nopales for the restaurant on 34th Avenue, a panaderia with a bimbo bread delivery truck in front, permanent fireworks stands busy only a few occasions a year, stores with bilingual placards advertising the services of tax preparers, curanderas, bail bondsmen, money wirers, places Salvador used to visit to send part of his paycheck home to Mexico, no matter how many times Patricia asked him to stop. Two men outside Rudy's Cash Express were dressed in jeans too tight and high-waisted for Americans, their shirts tucked in, just like Salvador when she met him. 
She took a deep breath so she wouldn't cry. A group of boys at about the right age were hanging out in the parking lot of El Pollo Loco, and Patricia pulled in. She rolled down the window as the boys backed away. Hey, guys, she said, do you know my son Ray? A skinny kid in a long-sleeved collared shirt buttoned all the way up to his incipient Adam's apple took a step forward. Stingray? It was a name Ray had earned in baseball for his blistering pitching. Patricia used it only to tease Ray when she was calling him to chores, but all the kids in the neighborhood seemed to call him nothing but Stingray. That's the one. He's inside. She found him crunching into a chicken taquito, sitting next to Miguel, who wore a pristine all-white Colorado Rockies cap backwards and some matching snow-white Nikes that he must have scrubbed the street off every day. The bleached gear signified something, and it scared Patricia that she didn't know what. Twelve years old and lanky, Ray wore his hair in a buzz cut, the shortest length Patricia would brook, covering it with a baseball cap the second school let out, where hats, with their potential gang affiliations, weren't allowed. She only let him buy caps in teams' regular colors. He had his father's sharp profile and pointed chin, but his eyes were Patricia's, brown and clear. He took a sip of his pop and choked a little when he looked up to see her. We need to go, she said. I'm not done eating. You are now. She grabbed his taquito basket and led him by the arm. Miguel bit into a taquito with a crunch so loud, Patricia took the gesture for insolence. Ray shook off her grip. You going to yell at me for not bringing Mia home, Ray asked, playing tough for his audience. Not today, Patricia said, so only he could hear. Did you come home early just to spy on me? She put her hand on the nape of his neck, feeling the pulse beneath his warm skin, and gave it a squeeze. Honey, you don't even know. He turned his back to her and started to rejoin his friend. I have to tell you something, she said softly, and he turned around. She didn't want to tell him here, but Ray was too big to drag home, and she didn't know how else to make him heed. She held Mia by the hand and took two steps back from Ray's friend. Something about her expression must have cracked his act. He approached, dropped his voice, and asked, What? She put her free hand on his shoulder. Your father is dead. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. So I started working on The Ringer about eight years ago. It went through many, many drafts, and I got discouraged many times, and I put it aside uh, for several lots of times. <laughs> but I promised myself I would keep revising it until it was good. Um, I met my friend Paula Younger over there, who is uh, this year's Beacon Award winner for Lighthouse. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> I, I met her at a writing conference, and she was writing a novel too, so we decided that we would trade chapters to each other. So we turned in a chapter a month to each other until both of our books had a draft done. Um, I finished a big revision of the novel in 2006, just before my daughter was born. And then a few months later, I started sending queries to agents. Um, I only sent a few. I sent a couple dozen because I was still open to the idea that it wasn't ready yet and I still needed to revise. But I just wanted to see what people said. I guess, of course, you're always hoping that people will be like, yes, you don't have to do any more work. But it's <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't turn out that way. Um, you have to go into writing a novel with this really strange mixture of humility and confidence. You have to be humble enough to just keep revising it and know when it's not ready, but then you have to be confident enough to believe that it's worth your effort to do that. And um, 
So a few agents requested it and they gave me a little feedback. Even though it was limited, I thought it, it needed another draft. So I gave the whole thing to Doug Kurtz, who's another teacher at Lighthouse. And I paid him in beer. And <laughs> he helped me find um, possibilities for increasing the tension and improving the subplots. He came up with the idea of Miguel. It's like a character like Miguel that would be the threat kind of thing. So that was helpful. Um, and then I rewrote with his suggestions, and I gave it back to poor Paula again. <laughs> She's read it like, I don't know how many times, poor thing. And um, I definitely could not have written this alone. I finished another draft just before my son was born in November of 2008. I find that having a baby is a nice, firm deadline to work with. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if I'm going to use that for every book. <laughs> Maybe a lot of kids. Um, so a few months after that draft was finished, I sent out queries, and I found my agent when my son was three months old. And I was looking back, and I sent out queries to a total of about 60 agents over those two years that I was looking. And I found my agent through an interview on a website called The Guide to Literary Agents. And at first I tried doing what everyone recommends, which is to look up the agents of authors whose book you, you admire and contact them. But a lot of times they're very successful and they don't have any room for new clients, or at least that's a good thing to tell yourself when they reject you. <laughs> so it's helpful to find new agents or people who are looking, who are doing interviews and putting themselves out there to look for people. Um, the other thing about him is there was nothing to indicate that he would have liked my novel in what he had published or what he said he liked. So I was just trying because he was looking for people. So. That's what I did. His name is Gary Height, and he's with Signature Literary. He didn't ask me to make any changes to my book um, before he sent it around. And he started sending it around in March of 2009. And ultimately, it made its way down the food chain to land happily at the Permanent Press in New York. It's a small press in New York. Um, they asked me to rewrite the ending of the book, and it was good suggestions. I think it made the ending a lot better. And I think I also was like, I never quite finished it. <laughs> I kept getting exhausted. You know, I'd have a baby. <laughs> I added one chapter on the end of it. Um, uh, I signed the contract with them in August of 2009. That was six months after my agent started sending it around and about seven years after I started writing the book. And now it's going to be published in March of 2011. So a few weeks. Everything moved really slowly. Um, the Permanent Press publishes only 12 or 14 books a year, so you've got to like, get into the rotation a couple years in advance. And, but having that year and a half between when I signed the contract and when it's being published was helpful because I have two little kids and I move really slowly too. And, um, so I used the time to revise the book one more time, and I set up my website, and I got on Facebook and Twitter, and I um, hatched various schemes like the one I'm about to describe. Um, Everyone tells you you should be into your next project by the time your novel comes out. And that sounds like really good advice that I haven't followed yet. <laughs> but I'm glad to report that now I'm immersed in thinking about, almost thinking about starting my next novel. So the only thing I know about it, I think that there's going to be a character in it that's a street artist. Um, like Banksy, who does the stencils, or Shepard Fairey, who does the Andre the Giant stickers. So I want to research what it's like to be a street artist, but I'm far too law-abiding to actually deface anyone's property. <laughs> <laughs> so 
So I think what a street artist does essentially is to create something funny or unexpected and give it to the world and see what happens. So I printed up these postcards that ask, who is L. Johnway? <laughs> and they point to the website ljohnway.com, which my hun- husband, the software engineer, has set up for me. Yeah. And L. Johnway is the name of the John Elway action figure that the little girl Mia in The Ringer carries around. She carries him around like a lucky charm everywhere she goes. Um, and I'm looking for help to distribute these around Denver, so if you'd like to take some, have <laughs> some back there. If you know of a place, a coffee shop or a bookstore, someplace where you can give leaflets and you take a few, I would appreciate it. Um, I thought if people noticed the postcards, they might want to talk to L. Johnway. So I set him up a Facebook page. <laughs> where people can talk to him. And, um, okay, well, thank you so much for coming. I'm going to be celebrating the release of The Ringer at the Tatter Cover in Lodo on April 8th, and I would love to see you there. usual, I am far taller than the microphone. That's okay. I'm also far louder than the microphone. Uh, my name is Eleanor Brown. I'm the author of The Weird Sisters, and I'm really sorry. Your hair looks really good from the back. I don't know if mine looks really good from the back, too. I'm sorry. <laughs> you have to look at it. Um, so, okay. Oh, right. So I'm Eleanor Brown. I'm the author of The Weird Sisters. I am uh, new to Denver. I moved here in mid-September-ish. And I would be lying if I didn't say that Lighthouse was a part of uh, moving here. I went to a novel boot camp a couple of years ago um, with um, the very hot Bill Henderson and 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 just loved it. Um, I'm going to tell you a little bit about my writing history and a little bit about the book and the publication of the book. And then I'll read. Sorry to upset the apple cart there. (laughs) I am subversive. Um, So, okay, so I was always a reader, I was always a writer, blah, blah, blah. Um, (laughs) Well, you don't want to hear that part. You you want to hear the the, the part about it becoming a book. And so here's what happened. Um, I spent a lot of time writing shorter work, okay? So I wrote short stories, and I wrote essays, and I wrote articles, and I wrote pieces for anthologies. Um, And at some point, it occurred to me that maybe I should try to publish those. So I did, and I got a number of those short pieces published. And that was extraordinarily helpful for me because when I started querying agents after I'd written a novel, I had a nice long list of publishing credits. So I was not... Nobody. I wasn't exactly somebody, but I wasn't nobody. Um, And if you're interested, my query letter was actually featured by Writer's Digest. So if you Google Eleanor Brown Writer's Digest, it should pop right up. Um, After a time, I decided that I was interested in trying something different. So I wanted to write a novel. And that, um, I didn't quite know what I wanted to do. So first I tried writing a lot of genre. Because stupidly, I thought it would be A, easy to write, and B, easy to sell. Um, I am here to tell you that neither of those things are true. So save yourself about five years right there. Um, I tried writing romance. I tried writing chiclet when that was the thing. I wrote young adults. I wrote um, a a thriller. And um, they were terrible. Um, I am really glad I wrote them because, A, it gave me experience in writing something much longer 
And uh, B, I learned, um, well, yeah, that's pretty much it. I I learned how to write something longer. Um, But ultimately what I realized was that the reason they weren't working was because I wasn't writing about things I cared about. I had always used writing as a way to sort of puzzle things out, to write about things that I couldn't understand or emotions I couldn't understand. And I wasn't doing that. I was trying to write specifically for the market. And that um, I'm sure there are people who can do that. I'm not one of them. So I decided I needed to write something in my own voice. And that is when I started to write The Weird Sisters. It came together slowly, the way novels have a tendency to do. I had started thinking probably five or six years before about wanting to write a book about um, three sisters. And I wanted to do that because I come from a family of three sisters, and birth order has always fascinated me, the idea that you are who you are in part because of the order you are born in in your family. And my, in my family, when we were younger, that was very true. We had this very stereotypical, like, very successful driven oldest, charming lost middle, um, spoiled, beautiful, brilliant youngest. <laughs> Um, so, so I was interested in that, and I was interested in the fact that even though we'd grown up and grown beyond that, whenever we got back together, oh, we were the same people that we were when we were young. Um, I was also playing a lot around with point of view and voice and narrator, as I think writers have a tendency to do. I know that probably a lot of you have that manuscript written in second person in your drawer. Oh, don't lie, you know you do. Um, And I was really interested in first-person plural, and I was wondering why more stories weren't written that way, Uh, especially because I wanted to write a story about family and about the way that um, family is with us always. So no matter your relationship with your family, they they still affect who you have become. So I decided to, to try to play around with that voice. So in the story, there's a lot of we and us I also wanted to write about adulthood, which was something I was trying to. I think I started this right around the time I turned 30. And I had been waiting for that day when I was going to wake up and say, today I am a grown-up and I will be responsible. Um, And that day hadn't actually arrived yet, and (laughs) it still hasn't. Um, But I'd always thought that it would, right? So you're young and you look at grown-ups and they look grown up, right? And so I thought that someday that would happen, but it never happened, and I always just kept feeling just like me. And so I was trying to puzzle that out. And so I tell you those things specifically, partially because that'll be super helpful when I read from the book in a minute, and also because um, I want to underscore the point that I was writing about things that I cared about. I wasn't writing for the market. As far as publication goes, I spent about a year writing the book. I tend to be a binge writer, so I will spend a month reading and researching and staring at the wall and thinking about things, and then I will write obsessively and like not shower and not eat for two weeks. You're with me, aren't you, right? Okay. Um, And then I'll go back to staring at the wall for another two weeks. Um, So it took me about a year, and then I spent about another year editing it, and again, I did that. Um, I'm a big proponent of uh, Stephen King's revision process in On Writing, if you've read that, where he's all about walking away from it because otherwise you don't have fresh eyes. And um, basically, if you're not really sick of your book by the time you have finished it, then you haven't read it enough. So it's important to take those breaks. Um, I queried about 100 agents. Uh, I don't know exactly how much. Um, And I got a whole lot of rejections. Um, And how much? How many? Pretend I didn't say that. Um, I made heavy use of agentquery.com. Um, I did what Jenny did. I went and I looked it all up. But let me tell you what, Jody Pico's agent, not so much taken on new writers right now. Um, 
So I finally found someone not only who wanted me, but I wanted her. And I think that's super important in the agent process. You, it's really easy to get discouraged because you're like, I've sent out 100 and everybody wants something different and this person wants sample pages and this person you know, wants a video of you dancing on YouTube you know, and it gets really frustrating. You get sick of it. Um, but it's really, really important to choose someone that you trust and that you think is, is going to represent you well. Um, I spent about a year doing edits with her at that point. And then it went out on submission. And I do not remember how long it was out on submission for. Uh, it was not overnight. Um, I read these stories uh, about people like, it went out on submission on Friday, and on Monday we had a bidding war. Um, and I kind of want to punch them in the face a little. Um, but again, that was a good thing, because it ended up at the publisher it was right for. So it ended up going at auction, which means that we had a number of houses that were interested in it, and we got to choose, which was great. Um, so I ended up at Amy Einhorn Books, which is a subsidiary of Putnam, and Putnam is a subsidiary of Penguin, um, which is probably a subsidiary of Kraft. <laughs> um, <laughs> And Amy Einhorn Books is probably most well-known for Catherine Stockett's The Help. It is really a sweet spot to be in. I am at a huge publishing house, so I have all the power of Penguin behind me. Um, but Amy herself, her imprint only publishes about um, 10 to 12 titles per year. So I had a lot of personal time with Amy. Um, I have had a lot, and because her imprint has done so well, um, I've had a lot of support from marketing and publicity. Um, so really a small imprint as a, at a big house is, is really a great place to be if you can get there. Um, Amy and I went through more edits and, um, then she finally accepted the manuscripts, uh, last January and it was scheduled to be published this year on February 17th. So I went through a lot of waiting. I started working with marketing about six months before the book was scheduled to come out. And it's really weird because there will be nothing. And then all of a sudden they want like seven Q&As and you know, want you to look over a reading group guide and where's this and where's this and here's your cover. And then it'll go back to nothing at all. Um, so it's, it's kind of a strange hurry up and wait process. We ended up moving the publication date to January 20th, and we did that. This happens all the time. Jenny and I were just talking about this. Um, publication dates get moved all the time, and you just have to be flexible. We moved it because Barnes & Noble wanted to feature it in their Discover Great New Writers program, which is a three-month promotion in stores and online. And uh, we lost out a on a little bit of publicity, I think, like with magazines for that, but it didn't matter because it's in being featured in Barnes & Noble right now, which is great. Uh, so we moved it to January 20th, and since that has come out, I've been doing lots and lots of work with publicity. Um, being with a small press um, definitely has huge advantages and disadvantages, as does being with a big publisher. Um, like I said, all the power of Penguin is behind me, which is wonderful. Um, and, you know, it's been in People, it was reviewed by the New York Times, it was reviewed by the Washington Post, I was on NPR. Like, none of that would have happened, you know, I couldn't make those calls. So um, that's really, really super-duper helpful to have... Super-duper? <laughs> <laughs> Apparently it's super-duper helpful um, to, to have that, that large house behind you. Um, probably the biggest shock for me has been the move, and this is kind of a semantic difference, but just go with it, the move from being a writer to being an author. Um, because there are a pile of responsibilities that come along with, with being an author. Um, so one, and you will not be 
prepared for it no matter what. Um, and I have had a lot of late night phone calls to other authors <laughs> saying, what's going on? This is really wonderful and really terrifying at the same time. Um, so it's, I think that having support in the same way, you know, that if you take courses at, at Lighthouse, you have a support. Um, you, that's important as well if you are published um, because you really, really always need people with you. So I'm going to um, read a little bit from the book. So what do you need to know? I told you it's in first-person plural. Um, oh, I'll tell you what it's about. How about that? Um, so The Weird Sisters is what I call a belated coming-of-age novel. It is about three adult daughters of a renowned Shakespeare professor who come home to the small college town where they grew up, partially because their mother is ill, but mostly because their lives are falling apart and they don't know where to go next. Um, it is a lot about birth order, and the section that I'm going to read to you is very much about that. Um, Shakespeare plays a large part of it. It's called The Weird Sisters. Nice little Macbeth reference there. Um, so what do you need to know? You need to know that um, it's bad luck to say Macbeth in a theater, so they're going to call it the Scottish play a couple of times. Um, you need to know that the three daughters are named after Shakespearean characters. There's Rosalind, who's called Rose, and Bianca, who is called Bean, and Cordelia, who is called Cordy. And I think that'll carry you through Okay. Okay. Here is the good thing about being the oldest, control. Here is the bad thing about being the oldest, control. When Bean arrived, something in three-year-old Rosa's mind clicked, and she knew that if her coveted role of only star in the Andreas sky had been wrested from her, then it, she at least would have the glory of playing the director. Chips would not fall where they may, but where she said they would. It was still Rosa's world. Bean was just living in it. When Cordy turned six, Rose finally deemed her old enough to take a speaking part in the frequent plays we performed for our parents. Cordy took the part of the loyal and mute maidservant, the one-lined extra, the spear carrier, and all of our sheet curtain productions in the basement, until Rose decreed that she had enough maturity to play, finally, the part that would make us complete, the three witches in the Scottish play. Though we weren't technically in a theater, and therefore it wasn't bad luck to say the name, Macbeth, 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 there, we said it, Rose still insisted we call it the Scottish play. We clad ourselves in cast-off clothes from the dress-up box, mostly old dresses from our grandmothers. We sent Bean on a mission to the neighbors' houses to find witch hats from Halloween costumes gone by, which she produced admirably. And we pressed mustard seed, our long-suffering cat, cum globe extra, into service as a familiar. Bean insisted. She figured the lack of a cat in the original play was Shakespeare's problem, not hers. <laughs> Musical accompaniment was provided courtesy of the plastic record player that had belonged to all of us and therefore rested, as things ultimately did, in Cordy's accounts. We had a scratched LP of Halloween sound effects that bumped and groaned along behind our lines. The regular sheets hung up as curtains for the stage. And Rose had secured a lobster pot from our mother large enough to boil Cordy in. And don't think the thought hadn't crossed our minds on more than one occasion. So there was the premiere, with our parents seated in the dingy love seat that hid an exceptionally squeaky pull-out bed, holding the two-of-a-kind original programs with the weird sisters, the Witches of Macbeth, written in, her, in Rose's hand by Cordy. Oh, hi, that's what happens when you skip a line. Um, with the weird sisters, the Witches of Macbeth, written in Rose's hand, and a little cauldron, no more than a black bubble at the bottom, drawn by Cordy, who had thrown a whale of a temper tantrum until we allowed her to help. Rose bit her lip as she watched Cordy's careful scrawl. Sure, it had destroyed the program, but she had learned that you must give in to the talent if the show is going to go on at all. 
The curtain opens, the gas fireplace crackling coldly behind us, and we began. Speak the speech, I pray you, trippingly on the tongue, our father cried out before we could speak, and he and our mother applauded wildly. Rose hushed him, breaking character and frustration before turning back to the long wooden spoon we had liberated from the jar above the stove. Rose had neatly excised all the extraneous characters, which made it an extremely abbreviated production. (laughs) We had at one point dispatched Cordy to our mother to request a brother, as he would have been enormously helpful. But our mother said it was not likely, and in any case, it would take an awfully long time, even if it were to happen, so we settled for the abridged version. Rose kept the first witch's part for herself, being as it was the one with the monologues and first to speak besides, and Bean played her part with a great deal of hair flipping, which she had seen on a television show during a sleepover at a friend's house, and Cordy got lost repeatedly until Rose hissed at her in frustration to keep her finger on the lines. When we finished, Rose was nearly in tears, frustrated with the way her great dramatic vision had failed to align with reality. That wasn't right at all, she cried, and would have commenced to pointing fingers had our parents not stepped in to console her. Bean and Cordy couldn't have cared less, as Bean was still practicing her curtsy from the curtain call, and Cordy was chasing Mustard Seed around, attempting to complete his costume with her witch's hat, which he, not surprisingly, wanted no part of. Your play needs no excuse, our father said. I found it lovely. It covers all the important parts without any of the major characters. (laughs) Brilliant adaptation. He kissed Rose's slightly hat-haired head. I agree, our mother said. I always thought the three witches were the best part of the play anyway. Of course, our father said. It was convenient of us to have you three so we could have our very own weird sisters. He gave our mother a wink over Rose's head. But Cordy did it wrong, Rose objected again. No, she just did it differently, our mother soothed. But it doesn't matter, because aren't the best plays the ones that are different? Well, no, not always. (laughs) We saw one production of Much Ado set in a USO in World War I, and that was quite good. But then there was the infamous Naked Midsummer, and the reverse race Othello, and those were both awful. But Rose learned an important lesson. People don't always do what you tell them to do. In the interests of fairness, though, we must remind you of the other side of this. Rose is the only one who can get us out the door on time when we have theater tickets or are trying to get to church on time. When our mother left pans of carrots boiling away to charred messes on the stoves, Rose made us peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, cutting them neatly into sailboats for Cordy. When she got her driver's license, she drove Bean to the nearest mall, which isn't really near at all, almost every weekend night, and didn't even tell on her the time she met those boys with the Trans Am and came home with vodka on her breath and vomit down the front of her blouse. And she helped Cordy sew her graduation dress even though she thought it looked hideous, and she was the professor in the math department whose course evaluations from her students always began. I always thought math was boring until I met Dr. Andreas. And as much as she hates us for taking away her throne, she has never, ever pushed us off of it. And she would be none of those things if she weren't the firstborn. Thank you. Hello. Thanks for coming, everybody. Um, let see. My book. Um, my book is an elegy to a father I never knew and a mother who helped me to see that um, he's with me, although I have no memories of him. Uh, 
It's written in the form of a literary shrine, a descanso, uh, which means resting place. And should I start over? Okay. Okay. So it's written in the form of a literary shrine, a descanso, which means resting place. Um, every essay, every prose poem, every lyric essay, every photo, every piece of artwork in the book is an offering on my journey to, to know my father and to know myself. And um, I'm going to read a little bit from one of those offerings. And um, this is from a, a piece called Among the Broken Angels. She draws me in with her voice, her story voice, breathless, distant, elusive as smoke. Death has a face, my mother says. Did you know that? I sit on my front porch step in Denver, sketching a shrine for Dio de los Muertos for my father, and she switches the conversation from folk art to her childhood, pulling me through the phone line into her world of secrets. The body's different, she continues. The back arches, the toes point, and the face makes all these expressions. Then the mouth opens wide and the eyes open wide, and all of a sudden, the body lets loose and relaxes. Something just gives. Then she stops, as she always does, mistaking my silence for disbelief, and I slide into the space between what she says and what I see. The wind blew in hard from the north, lashing the gnarled gray branches of the cottonwoods until they twisted and writhed like witches. Above White Mesa, thunderheads bruised the sky. Juan Mora stomped on the accelerator, and his flatbed tore along the wagon trail leading east from his Rio Puerto village. He was running out of time, and he knew it. He left his head gate open again, and if he didn't get to his field soon, his meager crop of pinto beans would drown in the torrent of rainwater set to roar through the acequias like a stampede. He had a string of bad harvests lately, and with the hot breath of the dust bowl bearing down from Oklahoma and Texas, he couldn't afford another. Shovels clattered in the truck bed. His oldest son, Vidal, bounced on the seat beside him, slamming his head on the roof. Juan didn't notice. His eyes were fixed on the anvil clouds sliding in from him as Pueblo. In ten minutes, maybe fifteen, he'd lose it all. Juan braked at the edge of his shallow furrows. Gravel sprang from his truck tires like a shotgun blast. He hopped out, grabbed a shovel, and thrust it at Vidal. Fix that brake at the north end and hurry. Vidal sprinted away while Juan made for the head gate at the south. His lanky frame loping along the banks of a canal he dug only four years earlier when he gazed into the buckskin folds of the valley and saw a shimmer he mistook for a promise. His boots fell heavily on the thick sand, and for a moment he was dreaming, running in place, arms pumping, sinking deeper into a land that would not be nourished with anything less than blood. At last he reached the large iron wheel regulating the flow of irrigation water. He gritted his teeth and turned. With all his strength he turned, rotation after screeching rotation until his chest heaved, his arms burned, and the heavy plate sank, heavy plate sank into the mud. He'd made it, he told himself, for once in his life, 
He'd made it. Juan wiped his forehead with his shirt sleeve, rested the shovel on his shoulder, and glanced back at Vidal. As he opened his mouth to call his son, the wind gusted, sending his straw cowboy hat zigzagging over the fields. Shoot, he grumbled, and started after it. Fifty yards away, Vidal bent over a breach, scooping silt with his hands, cold, tired, cursing under his breath. Everyone knew the storm was coming, he thought. Why did his father always have to soak his field so long? Why did he always wait until the last moment? Couldn't he do anything right? Then a flash and a boom. Vidal tumbled onto his side, ears ringing, enveloped by the odor of burned hair. Papa? He pushed himself up and scanned the fields, but he couldn't see his father. Papa? He scrambled toward the head gate, but slipped and fell, his, his mouth filling with a coppery taste of blood. Sloshing ahead on all fours, he saw a yellow curl hidden among the squat green leaves, his father's hat. As Vidal reached for it, other shapes took form, a denim sleeve, an arm, a pair of overalls, a man on his back. Papa! It began to rain. Sixty miles southeast in the village of Corrales, Abenicio Perea, my great-grandfather, dozed off in his broad iron bed when a voice swirled into his room. Estoy muerto. Abenicio reached over to shake his wife. It's Juan, he whispered. Juan Mora. I hear it, she said. Be quiet. The voice whipped around them once, twice, then tore down the road to the adobe home of Carlos Candelaria, my grandfather, Juan Mora's brother-in-law and best friend. Estoy muerto. Carlos covered his head with a bedsheet while his wife, Desolina, used a pillow to, sh to shield their infant daughter, my mother, who slept between them. Estoy muerto. I'm dead. The foot of the bed rose ten inches off the floorboards before slamming down hard. Desolina closed her eyes, sat up straight, and made the sign of the cross. May God forgive your sins, she shouted. Rest in peace. Leave us alone. Then nothing. The patter of rain on the sunflowers beneath the window. Carlos listened a good three minutes before slipping on his boots and rushing outside. Desolina called after him, checked the baby, and followed. My mother remained in bed, asleep. A spirit had just come to them, an angry, anguished spirit, and yet she remained calm, content, dreaming. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Wow. Um, where to start with the book? Um, For me, I guess, um, my book was a lesson in perseverance, faith, stubbornness, and saying no, and above all, learning to listen to my vision and my voice of what I thought it should be. Um, 
In the time it took for me to write this book, I learned a ton, a ton about the craft of writing. But more importantly for me, I think, um, I learned how to be, I learned what it takes to be a writer or what I would like, the kind of writer I would like to be. That makes sense. Um, so I never wanted to write a memoir. Um, when I started this book, I wasn't particularly a fan of the form. I began uh, the book in an MFA program, uh, Vermont College of Fine Arts, for those of you who might know it. <laughs> there you go. There's, there's a few of us here. Um, I was a columnist at the time. And um, I never, even as a columnist, never really felt comfortable writing directly about myself. You know, me being center stage, uh, the focus of uh, all my material. I always preferred to uh, write through metaphor or write through other people to, uh, to make my points. But, um, but in the program, and those of you who are in an MFA program know or will know that uh, they encourage you or push you into places that you don't always feel comfortable going so that you can grow. So uh, in my writing workshops and with my advisors, everyone says, you have a memoir here. You should write a memoir. Write a memoir. So, okay, you know, wanting to do well, you know, wanting to make everyone happy. Um, so I wrote a memoir. Um, I wrote three memoirs. Um, uh, three different memoirs, uh, each with a different voice, each with a different vision, each with a different style, each with a different page count. Um, my first version was uh, pretty straightforward, linear, chronological, this is what happened to me and this is what it means memoir. I was about 350 pages. Um, the people in my workshop liked it. My uh, advisors liked it. I hated it. I, I just didn't like it. It wasn't me. It didn't feel right. Um, so I set it aside. And I started again. And I went to the other extreme uh, for my next version and wrote uh, a 300-page poetry explosion, I guess, which was um, a lyrical essay, conceptual, fragmented memoir that my advisors liked and my workshop people liked, and, but I frankly didn't understand. <laughs> it, was, it was cool, but I didn't really know what I was doing. Um, and by that time, I had started publishing things and um, had won some contests, and I had signed with an agent um, who also liked the poetry explosion but gently told me I might want to stick it in a drawer for a while and write another book, uh, focusing on my mom character, uh, which is what I did. And for two years, I spent working on my second book, which I'm still, which I'm in the middle of now. And everything was going great. You know, my agent liked what I was doing, more or less. Um, I liked what I was doing, more or less. But uh, there was this other book. And it was unfinished, and I needed to finish it before I could finish my mom book. So, um, much to my agent's chagrin, I told him, no, I'm going to put the possibly more lucrative mom book aside, and uh, went back to the dad book. And I, re I wrote it again, top to bottom, a third time. But this time, 
it was what I wanted it to be. And interestingly enough, it was what I had wanted to do be at the beginning of the program, <coughs> before I had entered the blender of suggestions and advice and comments, and all that stuff is great, but I kind of lost my way a little bit. And the third time I rewrote it, it took me a couple months. And it's uh, 150 pages lighter than the first one. And it um, turns out that that's the version that I sent out and got picked up. You know, I, my agent didn't send it out. I, I wanted to do it on my own um, since, you know, being stubborn. I just wanted to do it on my own. So um, that got picked up. And uh, I guess the big lesson for me, and I guess most of you in this room probably already know this, and it just took me a while to figure it out. But um, if you don't know this already, I'm sure that you'll find it out very soon, that everybody is going to have a different vision for your work. Your spouse, your workshop friends, your workshop facilitator, your advisor in MFA program, your agent, your editor, everybody is going to have a different take on your piece. And it took me a while to deal with that, to get my footing in the whirlwind of advice, and to uh, nod and smile, take what made sense to me and let the rest roll away, and then forget everything what everybody said. And that's not the same thing as being... I'm very open to constructive criticism. God knows I need constructive criticism. But that's not the same thing as changing the thing that you need to say and the form in which you need to say it. And it took me a while to to figure that out. Um, now, you know, I may or may not have published the linear version of my book or the poetry explosion version of my book, but I'm glad I didn't. You know, learning, going through this the hard way uh, has given me, you know, the confidence, I think, that I need to sustain a writing career, not just get a book. And it's really helping me now as I hit the final stretch of my mom book and deal with my agent and go through it all over again. So... Um, I can, I'll stop there and we can, you can ask me questions if you'd like about uh, the particulars of the publication process, but uh, I'll stop there. So thank you. So I have a bad cold, um, but I think I can get through this. I hope so. Um, my novel is My Sister's Made of Light, which was published by Press 53, a small press out of North Carolina, last October. And I'm right now in the process of um, taking it around the country and reading it to lots of people, everything from third graders to high school to university to independent bookstores to um, the Women's National Democratic Club in Washington. <laughs> um, and, um, and so it's this really kind of turned into this grassroots process that I'm really enjoying. Um, the book is a novel that's set inside the uh, human rights movement in Pakistan. 
and it covers the period from 1958 to 1994. Um, and it is a book that begins with the, uh, the main character, whose name is Ujula, is a teacher who is in prison. And it begins with her, the jailer asking her, and this is an old device, but how did a nice girl like you end up in a place like this? And, um, and so she tells her story. So the, the narrative arc of the story is primarily first person. But there's also some um, backstory that, that the narrator doesn't know. And I'm going to read to you from that section. And this is the this is the parents' love story, which occurs in um, in 1958. And Nafisa, who is the mother, um, she's the, she's well. Let me explain a little bit of the characters. The mother and father are Nafisa and Kulraj, and they marry in London in 1958. They have a transgressive marriage, and we'll talk about that. I'll read you that section. Um, they go back to Pakistan and they raise a family of five children. And the present in the story is the 1990s, and it's these five children who are trying to address the problem of honor killings of women in Pakistan. And um, Ujula, who's a teacher, is the one who takes the lead, but eventually she engages the entire family in it one way or the other. So the parents' love story is not, not unimportant in terms of... Um, the, um, the, 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 both the spiritual and the um, sort of uh, gutsy way in which their children turned out. So I'll just read you a few minutes of this. Um, and don't lovers seal their fates by following the lure of what is forbidden? Many years later, after Nafisa's death, when he thought back to 1958, Kulraj Singh gave thanks to the forces that had brought them to London, where their eyes had been allowed to fall on each other's faces. When he saw Nafisa for the very first time, Kulraj Singh knew her bones like they were his own. He wondered then if he'd not seen her before in a dream. It was a familiarity that he could not penetrate. It happened at a dinner party at the home of Dean Albion from the engineering school, a fashionable bungalow not far from the tube station, he felt her presence at once when she entered the room, the way one feels the wind when a door opens somewhere. He glanced into an ornately framed mirror that reflected the light of Nafisa in the background and his own face in the foreground. Her skin was dark and her eyes were shining. When she smiled, he saw a dimple in one cheek and a little gap between her front teeth. Over her head was a magenta dupata trimmed in gold. He moved toward her. She stood by the coat closet, struggling to remove a wet trench coat, while at the same time she managed her dupatta and a shopping bag. May I help you, he asked in Urdu. Shukriya, but I do not need your help, she said with a measure of gruffness he had not expected. No matter, thought Kulraj Singh, it gives me something to work with. Of course you do not need my help, but may I offer it nevertheless? Without waiting for her response, he took the edge of the coat she was removing and pulled it away from her, allowing her to fold the dupatta with confidence and grace. Like all my Pakistani sisters, you arrange cloth with no apparent effort. Nafisa wanted to give a prompt retort to this Sikh. Where was he from anyway, she wondered. His Urdu did have a Punjabi edge to it, but she'd have to hear more to know for sure. To have a Sikh actually approach her 
and speak to her was new, as were so many experiences in England. She couldn't help but notice how slowly his fingers moved and how fine they were, long, lean, and graceful. And she was relieved to hear Urdu spoken again, the language of the educated, the modern, the up-and-coming class of South Asians. She was beginning to feel more herself, more at home. She turned to him. If my brother were here, he would walk me away from you, she said in a relaxed, friendly way. You're flirting with me, he blurted out. I hadn't expected that. His wide smile opened. I certainly am not flirting with you, she replied, again in Urdu. What, a res- what an insult. Not an insult, he said. You are a grown woman, are you not? You can choose if you want to talk or walk away or flirt or perhaps come over in this corner and have a cup of tea with me. Nafisa was completely disarmed. She knew where she was and who she was and why she had come. At the same time, she longed for a conversation with an adult male away from the hovering men of her country. But meeting with a Sikh, well, that was twice the trouble since he was both male and forbidden. She looked around. She discovered there was no one watching. No one cared. She turned her body toward Kulraj Singh, surprised to feel a warmth in her bloodstream, an undeniable surge in his direction. A small cup of tea? Perhaps so. So they develop a relationship in London, and and, uh, she's promised her parents she'll get her degree, she'll come back to Pakistan, and she'll marry whoever her parents want her to marry. But... um, but there's a problem, and the problem is she's a Muslim and he's a Sikh. She's from a feudal family. In 1958, the air was still sour with the stench of the slaughters that had occurred 11 years before when the British ran like dogs and India cracked. The blade that slashed the map also partitioned the bodies of the people, etching fear in their bellies and revenge in their hearts. Everyone. Muslims, Sikhs, Hindus, they all lost someone in the million who died. Ten million people migrated. Lines and lines of Hindus from the Indus River Valley in what would later be designated Pakistan packed their lorries, rode bullocks, and walked across the border into India. Lines and lines of Muslims from India carried all they owned to be part of the new Islamic nation. Rioting occurred first in Calcutta and then spread to Punjab. The refugees scouted the routes to avoid one another in the passing. If a train full of Hindus was murdered by Muslims from Lahore, and they were, then a train full of Muslims would be murdered by Sikhs and Hindus from Amritsar, and they were. Entire families were butchered, and their body parts were delivered by horseback to their villages. The people emptied baskets of breasts and pails of penises onto the ground, even the stubs of baby penises with scrotums like tiny figs. The soil was soaked with all the lost futures. And when it was done, when the trauma finally subsided to abide in the bodies of the people, they had to plant seeds in and eat the fruit of that same earth. Sikhs and Muslims alike knew the taste of each other's blood well, and they kept to their own. Kulraj and Nafisa in London, Romeo and Juliet in Verona, a Muslim and a Sikh in Pakistan, All of history conspired against them. But no matter, they would find a new way. So I started writing this novel 
uh, as a result of meeting this amazing Pakistani woman here in the U.S. in, in December 2002. I started the next day. I asked her if I could write her story because she told me about being a teacher for 25 years and trying to rescue women from honor crimes there. Uh, the process she went through. And um, I, I, I thought, she's the Harriet Tubman of Pakistan. I have to write her story. And I asked her, and she said yes. And um, it began that way. And I spent the whole spring of 2003 um, meeting with her and talking, reading. Well, I would meet with her and interview her and talk with her. She'd tell me what else to read. I would go home. I'd come back two weeks later. I'd read her 20 pages. It was my own little workshop. And um, she would, we would laugh, we would cry, we drank tea, we, we, uh, I'd ask her more questions, and we did that all spring. And um, by May, I had, a, I, had a, I had a first draft, very rough first draft, although I didn't know how rough it was um, until later. Um, and I was worried about, about um, I decided to fictionalize it because I was worried about her safety because she was going back to Pakistan to continue this work. And, and she's there now doing just that. And I also, but the other thing that happened was that, you know, writing took over. My imagination wanted to take the story places that didn't fit her biography. And um, so for both those reasons, <clears throat> I, I decided I would write a novel. Now, I'd never written a novel. In fact, I'd written very little fiction, um, almost none. I was basically a poet, and um, I'd written a lot of nonfiction, but... Um, but I was determined to do it. So I spent the next mm, eight years trying to learn how to write a novel um, and trying to do the business of writing. So there's the business of writing, and then there's the business of writing. <laughs> and, and both of those are important. Um, and one, sometimes one would take over the other. But I spent the afternoon, <coughs> excuse me, because of this challenge, um, Actually, going over my my Excel spreadsheets, looking at who I had sent manuscripts to, who I had contacted, when I had contacted them. If you don't have Excel spreadsheets, you need them or something like that because it's extremely complicated. I looked at all my all my um, tax deductions, uh, you know, for my write, for my writing, and 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 saw all the money I had, all the places I had gone, and all the. Um, the work I had done, I, lo- I, didn't, I couldn't look at the manuscripts. That would have really sunk me if I'd started doing that. But basically, um, um, this book evolved um, in that I had, a, I, had a, I, I had this first draft. I knew it was the first draft, but I was in love with it. This was my first mistake. I mean, one of the lessons that I've learned from this process is detachment. And I was very, it was very hard for me to, ta- to detach. But the longer I went in this process, the better I got at it. I was just slashing left and right there in the end. But in the beginning, it was very hard to let things go, especially if I thought they were well-written. Um, I found out that didn't necessarily matter. Um, I went to a workshop that summer uh, with Dorothy Allison, and she um, encouraged me to go to Pakistan, which I was already thinking of doing. I thought, can't write about it without going there. So I did go there the following uh, January. My friend was there. We traveled around on a kind of a human rights tour of Pakistan and saw places Pakistanis typically do not. But the main reason I went was I felt I needed the sensory experience. Um, 
you know, I need, I couldn't accurately really describe what it was like unless I could taste it, smell it, feel it, see it, and so on. And I also didn't uh, realize just the extent to which the rest of it, the stories, people were dying to tell me stories. They saw me as a very important person. Um, and, and, and so they wanted to tell me their stories, and many of them wanted, you know, wanted my help in a variety of ways. So I traveled to Pakistan. I decided that I was going to immerse myself in every kind of writing I could. I began um, going to writers' conferences here and elsewhere, and, um, and, and I began sending my, my, my manuscript out in 2004. I sent it to 50, oh, my God, literary agents. In 2005, under the, name, under the, the first name of the book was Inshallah, which means God willing. By 2004, I changed it to Baji, I mean, respected elder sister. Um, and, and, and by 2005, um, I, it was called The Price of Kissing is Your Life. And, I, um, and I, what happened was, was I, I, I came to the Lighthouse Writers Conference um, that summer of 2006, and I went to a panel of the panel of publishers and so on. And, and actually, I got there was one editor locally who was very interested, and um, and uh, and and that was great. Um, but there was also a, there was a, 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 an agent I really liked on this panel. But she said, "I'm just looking for memoir and nonfiction." But I thought, no matter, she'll find a new way. So, so I wrote to her and told her about my book. And a lot of my book, like that last section, reads a bit like nonfiction. And that's, in, that's intentional um, because, um, because my book is for a Western audience and so, much of, so many of us don't know the history. We don't know some of the background materials. So I wanted to include that. Anyway, so I had a wonderful editor who, who said um, she would represent me. At the same time that happened, that was 2006. This was after three years of working on this. I had two offers of publication, one from Oxford University Press in Karachi in Pakistan, um, and they were they liked the book, but their readers told uh, said that it had blasphemy in it, and um, you know blasphemy you might recall Salman Rushdie has some serious consequences in certain parts of the world, and and so I hadn't considered that having a character say I'm angry with God could possibly be blasphemy, but indeed it was, and so there were things I would have to change. Um, and I was willing to do that. I was willing to do that, um, but I didn't understand it. I didn't understand it. And I, and I was, they were halfway around the world, and we were emailing, by, we were communicating by email, and I had sent them the manuscript six months before, and they wanted an answer from me in 48 hours. And I just said, I can't do that. And I talked to my new agent in process, and she said, oh, I can do better than that. And another press made me an offer as well. She also said, we can do better than that. So she's a, wonderful, she's a wonderful agent, and she spent a year and a half trying to sell the novel and wasn't able to do it. And I finally, after about a year, I said, you know, I thought to myself, I think I want out of this contract because I, maybe I can sell it better myself. You know, maybe, maybe, because if you take the agent's fee out of the negotiation, more things are possible. And she was thinking bigger than I was at that point. <laughs> I just really wanted the book to have life. And, and we had a really nice meeting, and she was ready to let it go 
And, and uh, actually, as it turned out, she moved on and left the business. So I was finally kind of free of that by 2008, 2009. But the, and that was the good news. The bad news was the whole market had shifted. Nobody was publishing novels at that point. I had, in the early days, and I, I brought examples, but I, in the early days, I'd gotten feedback about, you know, the need for a better narrative arc, then the less discourse, more dialogue. You know, I'd gotten sort of feedback on writing, which actually was really good, and I would advise anybody here who gets feedback to not blow it off, because I think actually that was really helpful some of it, some of it wasn't, but some of it was. Um, but by the time 2009 came around, 2008, it was, uh, we're not doing fiction. We're doing three books of fiction this year. We have a whole backlog d- due to the economy, blah, blah, blah. So, so I, I really despaired that there would be any life to this book. Now, I'm telling you about the business of writing, not the business of writing, now, the business of writing that was going on at the same time was a, a bit like um, like my friend here described, um, in that I was I was writing and I was changing form, I was changing voice, I was I was reading everything I could about how to write a novel, I was listening to books on tape while I was on the treadmill about how to write a novel. Stephen King, getting rid of adverbs, I was doing all the things that they tell you to do, and actually the manuscript was getting stronger as a result. And my agent also was very helpful in terms of giving me her feedback on the changes I would make. So I began to get feedback from agents who had seen it early, who I sent it to late, saying it was really improved and they liked it a lot. But either they didn't fall in love with it or um, it was um, it, it still needed, they didn't have enough room on their list. It didn't fit. That, that I didn't fall in love with it and it doesn't fit is like a common line. And I can imagine having that job would be tough, saying no to writers. That's kind of a neutral way of, of saying no. Um, so, so, that, so the year after that, in 2010, um, actually 2009, I decided maybe I should self-publish. Of course, people have been suggesting this all along. And I was trying to have an open mind. And I actually hired a book designer who's here. Where are you, Sonia? Sonia Unrein, world's best book designer. Look at this. Um, and Sonia was a great support. And I also uh, talked with Chris Abani, who is a poet and novelist who's become a good friend of mine through writers' workshops. And he referred me to a publicist, and I talked to her, and I couldn't afford her. But she just opened a lot of doors for me, and she really believed in my work. Uh, Cheryl Johnston from Chicago, great woman. And um, and she encouraged me to go to Chicago to the to they have a they have a writing program there, um, amazing program, and they have a spring program called uh, Story Week, and it's all fiction writing. Um, and the one of the editors of F Magazine at that college published novel excerpts, and he published an excerpt of the novel. So things began to roll a bit. In the end, I decided not to self-publish, and and, and when two thousand. 10 started, I said, I'm just going to try every small press I can find. And, um, boy, this is starting to sound like Queen for a Day, isn't it? A little bit. Anyway, long story short, in the end, I was going to visit my best friend, Linda Fowler, who lives in Asheville, North Carolina, and I thought, I'll see if there are any presses in that area. I looked up Press 53. There was a lot going on on this website. 
And um, but they said they weren't accepting they weren't accepting manuscripts till April, and this was mid March. So she would find a new way. So she wrote anyway and said, I'm coming there. You want to see it? They said yes. She loved it. It was, I had a contract in six weeks. And it was published four, four or five months later. So the experience of working with them and working especially with this editor, Robin Mura, I happened to be her first. She'd just been hired there. She was looking for work. Um, and she's a wonderful editor. So you might look at Press 53. Um, um, anyway, that, that kind of made it all real. So for me, the lessons, many of which I did not, fo- I did not follow, um, the advice I ignored, one, resist the big temptation to set material out, send material out too early. Um, we actually, you know, we get so mesmerized by the fact that we've written something and it somehow holds together that we think it's like a mother with an ugly baby, you know? You just love it, and you want somebody else to love it, but they don't. They just can't. And, and so, so the other thing was just this discipline and persistence that everyone has talked about. Um, and I think it's really important to find ways that keep encouraging you. You know, going to writers conferences and being around writers and so forth. If you find it discouraging, do something else. Do something else that that might encourage you or do a writing program you know that's different from the one you did before. Um, so, you know, as 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 the narrator says in my book all of history conspires against us writers, but um, Henry Miller said if you can write a million words, you can find your voice. Even a sort of a a satchmo voice like mine tonight. Um, So I wish you the best of luck because, in the end, I really think it was a combination of all those things and really good luck that I was able to get this book published. Thank you for listening to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop podcast. We bring this to you thanks to Lighthouse members and funders and listeners like you who support the cause. We are grateful to the SCFD Tier 3 for their support. More information on Lighthouse Writers Workshop and opportunities for involvement can be found on our website at www.lighthousewriters.org.